Well, last Sunday, with hardly any notice whatsoever, you guys gave $2,700 in a special offering for Clay Cecil's grandparents. Clay is our student minister, of course, you saw him do the baptism. His grandparents lost all their possessions in a house fire. And your generosity just never ceases to amaze me. I mean, seriously, most of you don't know Clay's grandparents. Heck, most of us don't even like Clay. And let, <laughs> yeah, man, you guys were just so over-the-top generous. I just appreciate that. But, but understand, that is, what you did is an expression of grace, right? It is blessing somebody with no expectation of being repaid or of being blessed back. It's an unearned expression of love. Well, grace in the Bible is God's expression of love to us. It is his unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. The series that we're in this month is called The Grace Effect. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15.10 that God's grace to me was not without effect. And we talked in the first week of the series about the grace that saves. That we can have our sins washed away, that we can become a new person in Christ, not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done for us. It's not something that we earn, it's something that we accept, it's something that we experience for ourselves. And then two weeks ago, we talked about transforming grace. That God's unmerited favor doesn't end once we're saved, but rather the process of transformation takes a lifetime. You could be the worst of sinners or the best of saints, but all of us need God with this ongoing grace in our lives to work on us to make us more and more like Jesus. Last week, we talked about the grace that empowers, that, that God gives us gifts and abilities because of his grace that we can then turn around and use for his glory. And those gifts are also an expression of grace. They are his unmerited favor. Well, there, there are more types of grace that we're going to talk about this week and next that happen beyond salvation and spiritual gifts and even transformation. This morning, we're going to talk about the grace that sustains. Now, I want to be honest with you, and by the way, that's just a figure of speech. It's not like I'm usually dishonest, okay, and now I'm going to be honest. I mean, I, okay, the truth is, you may not like today's sermon very much. You may not like the bottom line of the message. You might not even really like the text all that much, at least as sort of, you know, red-blooded patriotic Americans, this is just not our kind of text. Because we are all about declaring independence, right? We love stories of courage and determination and success against all odds. We watch movies like Remember the Titans, uh, the whole Avengers series, The Boys in the Boat, which is out right now and is fabulous, by the way, if you haven't seen that. We are inspired by, by the strength of people who endure everything and come out on top. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul declares his dependence on God. He embraces his weakness. He brags about how inadequate he is. And I don't know about you, but that's not typically a message that I want to hear. I like it when the underdog comes out on top. I like victory, not defeat. I don't want to go to the movies to see the boys in the boat get whipped by the Nazis. I want them to stick it to Adolf Hitler. You know what I'm talking about. And I'm guessing that you kind of feel that way too. So why would Paul, here in this text, make such a big deal about being weak? 
Why would he boast about his struggles, his opposition, his difficulties, his inadequacies? Well, he's going to tell us why, but I want to give you a little bit of background first. Kind of hang with me through this. In the book of 2 Corinthians, chapters 10 through 12, Paul defends his ministry to the church in Corinth. Apparently, there were these false teachers who were undermining the apostles. They were taking advantage of people in the church. They were boasting about this special revelation they received from God. They were turning the spotlight on themselves rather than on Christ. These guys were sort of the the televangelists of the first century. They were promoting themselves, and they were bad-mouthing Paul and the other leaders in the process. And so Paul is forced to come along here and, and... he has to defend himself. He appeals to the, to the Corinthians to think about the calling that he received from the Lord and the message that he was preaching and the suffering that he endured for the gospel. He has to defend himself because there's so much opposition. In 2 Corinthians 10.8, for instance, he says, I may seem to be boasting too much about the authority given to us by the Lord, but this authority is to build you up, not to tear you down. And I will not be put to shame by having my work among you destroyed. He says, look, my boasting is not to promote myself. I want to help you by defending the work that we've done among you. And then in chapter 11, verse 21, he says, what anybody else dares to boast about, all these big mouth guys over here are boasting. Well, I'm speaking as a fool, he says, but I'm going to boast with them. Are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? Well, so am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? He said, I'm out of my mind to talk like this, but I am more of a servant of Christ. I've worked harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I have been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. And Paul spends this valuable time defending himself in the face of opposition. These guys are making false claims and they're They're hurting people's faith. They're destroying and undermining the foundations of faith. Now, all that being said with this group over here, not you guys specifically, it's that hand gesture, okay? I'm not pointing at you. So you got this group over here who are causing trouble. And then over here, you kind of swing the pendulum the other way, and there are people who are putting Paul up on a big pedestal. I mean, he is all that, and it's almost like they want to worship Paul, right? They've... All that he's experienced and all that he's accomplished and his great ministry. And so while Paul's boasting, he says, you know what? I also need to boast about my weakness. In 2 Corinthians eleven thirty, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And you say, well, what's that all about? Well, then he moves into 2 Corinthians chapter 12 here and he tells us what it's all about. Verse 1, as that chapter begins, I must go on boasting Although there's nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows. He was caught up to paradise. And he heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I'll boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Now, what's all this about? 
A man in Christ was caught up to the third heaven. This guy went to paradise. He heard things from God that he can't tell anybody about. And according to Paul, it's all true. Absolutely every word of it. Well, in case it's not really obvious to you at this point, Paul's talking about himself here. He's using the old, I know this guy, or I've got this friend. And then he tells this story because he's not trying to to make it all about him. This this was kind of a common thing for a rabbi in the first century to talk kind of in the third person rather than say, I this, I that. That's what Paul's doing here. He just doesn't want to make it all about him. Now, we know that he's talking about himself because just a few verses later, he switches back to first person and he says, because of all these revelations I received, this is what happened next. Now, before we read any further, what's this whole third heaven idea that he mentions? Well, in ancient times, the first heaven referred to the sky around us. It's where the birds fly and the clouds float. Okay, it's what you kind of see during the daytime. The second heaven was where the sun, moon, stars, and planets are. It's outer space kind of a thing. Things we can still see, but beyond the scope of what's right here. The third heaven, then, is where God lives. It's the heaven where the souls of believers go when they die. It's that other universe, that place where evil cannot exist. So Paul has this experience of some kind. He's not even sure if it happened bodily or if it was like a spiritual experience. He just knows that it was amazing. And so all of this sets up finally the key verses for this morning. This is what it says in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12. To, listen, to keep me from becoming conceited because of all these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And it's like, time out again. What on earth is this? A thorn in my flesh. And the Greek word here in the New Testament for thorn was not like a little you know, thorn on a rose that might prick the end of your finger. It's, this word meant more like a stake or a spike. And and it's like he's being impaled. There is something going on here that is really intense. Something that's painful is happening in Paul's life. And since the writing of the New Testament, scholars have speculated about what his thorn in the flesh was. Some have suggested that it was a spiritual problem like doubt. Or it was some kind of major temptation like lust or greed or pride. Others have suggested that Paul's thorn was persecution from the Jews. Still others, that it was a speech impediment or a recurring illness like malaria or epilepsy. Maybe, some have even said it was his ugly appearance that was his thorn in the flesh. I think maybe one of the more likely uh, options here is that it was eye problems, just near blindness. In the book of Galatians, Paul alludes to the fact that he had really, really poor eyesight. But the deal is... We don't know what the thorn was. It was a physical affliction, but we're not sure what. And the verb tense that he uses here suggests it was not a one-time problem. This is an ongoing trial for him. He battles this just all the time. And i got to be honest with you. I, I, I think Paul chose to not give us the specifics for a reason. I mean, think about it. If his thorn was eye problems, well, then the people most likely to identify with this passage of Scripture would be people with poor eyesight. If Paul said that it was malaria or epilepsy, then people who had kind of a recurring illness would find this passage really helpful for them. But, but he's ambiguous. 
I think so that anybody who is struggling with anything can look here and find strength. I mean, we all have a thorn in the flesh. You might be married to yours. I'm just saying. You know, all of us have something that we're dealing with, right? Now, interestingly, Paul suggests here that the thorn was approved by God, but it was a messenger of Satan. The misery came from the enemy, but it was allowed by God because it had a positive purpose. And I think, I think that's a fascinating situation we got going on here. Listen, God can use anything. Even the work of Satan to accomplish his purpose, which is to mature us, help us grow strong in Christ. Just like God allowed Satan to inflict Job in the Old Testament with a lot of pain, God allowed this pain from Satan in Paul's life to mold him into the man he wanted him to be. Now, maybe it bothers you that God would allow Satan or use Satan, allow hell to have so much authority in this world to fulfill a heavenly purpose. But I don't think it should. What this really says is that God is sovereign over everything, even the devil, to accomplish his will, God's will. But that's not really what I want to talk about. Whatever Paul's weakness was, it was hurtful, it was painful, he didn't want it, it caused heartache for him. But he says in verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh. Because of all that Paul had done and seen and accomplished and experienced, the concern was that it would go to his head. Fact is, I think that pride was a temptation for Paul. I think by nature, by the way he was raised, he was a, a proud person. Now, don't get me wrong, Paul was a great man. Probably the greatest missionary who ever lived. He wrote much of the New Testament. He was a brilliant scholar. He was a more devoted disciple to Jesus than I'll ever be. Okay, I'm not throwing stones at him. I just think of kind of the big three sins of lust, greed, and pride. I think pride would have been his biggest challenge. And so this thorn in the flesh was allowed by God to keep Paul from becoming conceited. It was both miserable and it was valuable because it kept him humble. Look at verse 8. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Talking about his thorn. To take it from me. But he, the Lord, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is enough. There's our word grace. If you've been waiting for it, two-thirds of the way into the sermon before we got to it. But here it is, grace. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. It's like God says, Paul, I'm going to let you suffer through that thorn in the flesh because it is going to help you avoid a bigger problem in your life, pride. So Paul says, okay. I mean, well, what else can he do? God made the decision. He's convinced God knows what he's doing. So here's how Paul wraps this up in the middle of verse 9. Therefore, he says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. God's grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in weakness. And this word perfect means complete. 
God says, look, my grace is enough for you. My power is complete in you. When you are weak, you have the best opportunity to be strong. Now, I like to give you a bottom line every week. You know that. So, but, but instead of me just handing it to you today, I want you to, to wrestle with it for just a, a minute here. The bottom line is to experience God's strength, we must blank our weaknesses. Now, what do you think that word might be? To experience God's strength, we must overcome our weaknesses. We must confront our weaknesses. We must deny our weaknesses or or lay aside our weaknesses to experience God's strength. We must endure our weaknesses, not according to Paul. According to Paul, to experience God's strength, we must embrace our weaknesses. I delight in weaknesses, Paul says. Now look, he's not talking about delighting in temptation or delighting in sin or delighting in his sinful nature. Not those kind of weaknesses. He's saying, look, I delight in my humanity, the inability that I have to overcome my own problems. Why? Why is that so important that he he delights in his inadequacy? He's, He's glad that he has them. Because, listen, when we come to the end of ourselves, when we reach the point where we cannot fix ourselves and we acknowledge that, when we accept the fact that we are incapable of conquering our own problems that we have in our lives, then we're ready to cry out to God for help. We have to realize that we are not able to fix ourselves. Murray Harris wrote this, Divine power finds its full scope and strength only in human weakness. The greater a Christian's acknowledged weakness, oh man, I'm so weak, the more evident Christ's enabling strength. Maybe picture this. You go go to a jewelry store. Have you ever noticed that they don't have the diamonds and jewels laying out on bright colored material with a busy pattern? You don't see a lot of paisley prints in jewelry stores. Not a lot of camo there, although around here maybe, I don't know. I don't spend a lot of time in jewelry stores. But typically, what happens is a dark, solid colored background is there so that the necklaces and the earrings and the solitaires just really, they just pop. They really stand out against that dark background. When it comes to God's strength, it becomes more evident against the backdrop of human weakness. Okay, God's strength becomes more evident when it's wrapped in human frailty. I mean, you think about it. When somebody comes along and, man, they're wealthy and successful and independent and smart and good-looking, and they do something significant, man, everybody just kind of goes, wow, what a great person. Well, he or she is just, man, they're just amazing, and maybe we kind of look at them, admire them, maybe even envy them. But somebody comes along who has kind of average means, modest intelligence, they're kind of ordinary looks. And they do something significant, you start to say, wow, God must really be working through them. And then somebody comes along who is just really broken. I, I, I mean, they just, they do something really profound, really powerful, but they just, they're just a wreck. And we say, man, God has just worked a miracle in their life. Listen, everybody has weaknesses, right? It doesn't mean that God can't use wealthy, successful, good-looking, you know, kind of people. I, uh, we've got people like that in this room. 
But it's just that all of us have to reach a point of declaring our dependence on God, that we cannot do this by ourselves, that we don't have what it takes. We have to embrace and declare our dependence in order to receive God's strength. Everybody has to do that. Until we can recognize the weaknesses, we're not going to be able to receive his strength. It's often the people who appear the most weak that receive the most strength. And those people that we look at and we don't think they have any weaknesses, it's not that they don't. They've just gotten better at hiding them because they don't have enough security to let them show. Okay, because we're all a mess. So, so, so this is why Paul's so quick to point out his struggles, because once he embraces his weakness, then God is free to work in him. He says, I delight in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. This word, that his power may rest on me, the Greek word here means a tent that is spread over. God's power spreads over us. It envelops us. It protects us. It wraps itself around us. Now, let's be honest being in a tent is not very comfortable. You might be a tent kind of person. I like to be outside all day, but I like my bed at night. I'm just not much of a tent kind of guy, okay? Just being honest. So when it says that God's power in me is like a tent, it's not a grand hotel, okay? It's not a, oh, a, 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 an underground bunker where nothing can get to you. Maybe a lot of bad stuff's going to get to you, but God has this tent that's going to be just enough because you know what? Sometimes a tent is the, the only difference between life and death. And so he spreads his tent over us. We have to embrace our weakness. Paul didn't enjoy being weak. He did not inflict pain on himself. He just reached a point where he made the most of his weakness. In fact, think of it like this. He learned to turn his infirmities into assets. Let's take what's bad and let's find the good in it. This thorn in the flesh was not Paul's greatest problem. I think pride was the problem. Self-reliance was the temptation. And so this thorn kept him dependent on God. He learned that God's grace was enough. He learned that God's sufficient grace was sufficient to see him through. That's God's strength. That God... Strength would be more evident in his life when he stopped trying to do everything by his own power and he welcomed God's power. It takes humility to say, I can't do this on my own. I need help. But once we come to that point, that's when God helps. His sustaining grace gets us through. When, when, when you fail at something, man, you're at school or you're at work and it's just nothing's working out like you thought it should or, or you're lonely or you get cut from the team or, or people just won't give you a break and you're standing in the hospital waiting room or you're in the funeral home or you're in the unemployment line. Man, you've been betrayed and you've been abandoned. You're not sure that you have what it takes to go on. When we reach that point of utter weakness, that's when God's strength takes over. At the end of our rope is when God does his best work. Think about Paul. Paul began chapter 12 here of 2 Corinthians by talking about this vision of paradise that happened 14 years before. Many Bible scholars believe, and I believe, that he's talking about what happened to him in Acts chapter 14. Over in the book of Acts, in chapter 14, he says, Some Jews from Antioch and Iconium came, and they won the crowd over. They stoned Paul, dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. 
But after the disciples gathered around him, he got up, he went back into the city, and the next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. One minute, Paul appears to be dead. The next minute, he hops up, he hikes back into town, and the next day, he goes off to be a missionary again. It is believed by many that Paul actually died in that moment when he was stoned, that he got this vision of paradise, and then God miraculously healed him and put his spirit back into his body. That's what I think happened. You may disagree, but assuming that's what happened, I want you to think about how many times when Paul was lonely, when Paul was in prison, when Paul was being beaten, when Paul was under attack, how many times did he remember that vision of heaven and it strengthened him? It reminded him that this messy world is not all there is, but there is so much more to look forward to. To experience God's strength, we have to embrace our weakness because when we are at the bottom, that's when God steps in the most. When I am weakest, that's when I'm strongest. All right, when I was 10 years old, a television show came out called The Six Million Dollar Man. You guys remember that show? Some of you are too young to know that show. The Six Million Dollar Man. Steve. 